So um, we're in part eight of our series, and the title of the conclusion of our series is this, Fulfilling God's Plan. I believe the goal of parenting is for us to raise up young boys to be men of God, young women to be women of God, and I think the goal is for them to grow up and fulfill the plan that God has for their life. Now, I believe that if I were to ask all of the young people in this room and just say, tell me your heart, tell me everything that you're thinking, feeling, everything, I think after hours and hours of hearing them converse, I think the number one question on every young person's heart is this, does God have a plan for me? In other words, you know, my parents divorced when I was little and I had to go back from home to home, summer with dad, winter with mom. Does God have a plan for me? You know, I was sexually abused by somebody that was supposed to protect me and take care of me, and they didn't. So does God have a plan for somebody like that? Does God have a plan for me? I was told I wasn't smart enough. I have a learning disability. I don't catch on as quick as the other kids. Does God have a plan for me? You know, I'm I'm not as pretty as this one. I'm not as strong as this one. I'm not very athletic. I don't do good in this class. I get made fun of. I'm bullied. Does God have a plan for somebody like me? I'm going through all these things. And, and you know, if you remember back when you were young, and be honest, you didn't tell your parents 10% of the stuff that you battled. No, you didn't. You hid it so well. And even if you did try to verbalize the sexual abuse or you did try to verbalize the bullying or you did try, most likely 50 years ago your parents just brushed it off like it's no big deal. And there's more temptation in our world today than there's ever been. There's more temptation on a cell phone than any of you adults ever battled when you were in high school. Right? The things that can be seen and get passed on and the things that happen and made fun of and social media and all this kind of stuff. Our kids don't tell us things. And so on the inside, they're struggling. They're battling. They don't like that their parents got divorced. They don't like that they're, 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 they have these feelings here that don't line up with what they know is right and people are making fun. And all these questions, does God have a plan for me? I mean, amidst all that, is there something he needs me to do? Does he see me? Like there's, there's millions of people on earth. Does he have something for me? Am I going through all this for nothing? Does anyone really hear my heart? Did, did, does, does God actually see me and know me? And does he, did he write something out for me to do? Because I want to do it. I just don't know what it is. And I feel like there's no plan for me. I feel like I'm just going into neutral. And whichever way I get bumped is the direction that I go. Does God have a plan for me? Jeremiah 1.5, God told Jeremiah, before I formed you, before I formed you in the womb of your mom, I knew your personality. I knew everything you would say, everything you would do. I, you know, whether you take soccer or football, whether you're good in math or English, none of that matters because I have a plan for your life, and that is this. You're going to speak to nations on my behalf as a prophet. I have something I need you to do, Jeremiah. Uh, Elizabeth was told in, in Luke 111, 13, you're going to have a son. His name will be John. And the purpose is that he's going to cause people to repent. That the plan for your son's life is that with his personality and his gifts and whatever sport he plays or whatever, the goal is he's going to cause people to recognize they need a savior. Judges 13, 5, the angel told Samson's mom, your son's going to cause uh, God's people to be delivered from the hand of the Philistines. Now, Satan dated, I mean, uh, Samson dated the wrong person, went in the wrong direction, but ultimately he did do exactly what God wanted. He delivered God's people and he destroyed the Philistines. Jeremiah 20 and 11, the plans I have for you, says the Lord, not says the pastor, not says your parents, uh, not says, the, the plans I have for you, says the Lord, are to prosper you and give you a future. Listen, if there's anything I can stand up here and say with the greatest of all confidence, it is this, God has a plan for your life. God has a detailed, specific plan. He put something inside of you before before your mom found out she was pregnant. 
Before the ultrasound ever revealed that there was something on the inside of her belly, God already had it all worked out. I have something I need you to accomplish on this earth. Now, just because God has a great plan for your life doesn't mean it's going to automatically happen. Here's why. The minute your mom found out she was pregnant, you became a target to Satan and every demon. You scare the hell into Satan. You scare him to death. He will do everything he can to kill your child. Kill your child. Kill him. Now, whether your child grows to be 80 years old and a millionaire or, or they, they die young, either way, apart from God is death. That is Satan's goal, to get them apart from God. Satan will use every single wrong influence he can possibly find, every single addiction he can possibly get into your child, every single wrong adult that's supposed to protect your child to try to hurt your child. He'll do everything he can to destroy your child's future, to pull your child's heart away from the things of God, to tell them just live by how you feel, not by what God says. Whatever he can do, he'll use social media, the wrong people, TV. He'll use everything he can because Satan knew before you knew that God had a plan for you. Do you know before you ever heard me or anyone say that God has a plan for your life, Satan already knew that himself, and he already started going to work. I'll show you. Exodus 1.15, it says this. Pharaoh said, all the baby boys must be killed. Exodus 1.22, the king of Egypt said, throw them all in the Nile River. Matthew 2.16, Herod killed all the male children. 2 Kings, you see what Satan's trying to do all through generation after generation. 2 Kings 17.16, the parents abandoned the Lord and they began to love money and idols and they began to worship the stars rather than the one who created the stars. It, they were so deceived, they ended up sacrificing their sons and daughters in a fire, and then they went to fortune tellers to say, tell me my future. Now, when you read this, you think in here, I would never, ever, ever, ever throw my children into a fire for their bodies to, I would never, that is so evil, that is horrible. You know why? Because you don't want your child to hurt physically. We don't want them to break a bone. Oh, Lord, we would never be so deceived into throwing our children into a fire where they'd be burned alive. But you know what? We throw them to the wolves and they're dying spiritually. And do you know, I'd rather my child be saved and die young than live to be 90 years old, have a great physical body, but be apart from God for all of eternity. We throw them to the lions spiritually, emotionally, mentally, the things they're being told. And then we expect them to be this great man of God or this great woman of God. But we'd never throw them into a fire because we, 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 we can never be that deceived, could we? Do you know the reason that Satan fought David so much is the same reason he fights your child? Because he knows that God has a plan. 1 Samuel 16, 12, the Lord told Samuel, David's the one, he will be king. That's the goal. The plan is he will be, he will be. So you know what happened? Right after God spoke these words, right after this was said, Satan went to work. And David was sent to take care of someone else's sheep, not even his own, the lowest of the lowest income job you could possibly have. After that, a bear and a lion came after David. After that, his own brothers belittled him and made fun of him in front of the whole Israeli army. After that, a giant tried to fight him in front of him. After that, King Saul hated him. After that, David's own son tried to kill him. After that, the one night of the whole year when David was supposed to be at work, he decided to stay home and be lazy, and he was on his roof. And that one night was the night that Bathsheba decided to take a bath on the roof of her house, which was the temptation that almost destroyed David's life. Why did all these horrible things happen? Here's why, because God had a plan. And if you're here today and you've been through a lot, listen, the bigger the problems, the bigger the purpose God has for you. The bigger the pain, the more pain you're experiencing, 
the bigger the plan that God has for your life. Here's the good news. Acts 13, 36, David completed God's purpose, and then he died. This is the goal for parenting, just so you know, is for our children to die having fulfilled the purpose that God has for their life. We don't want them to die unfulfilled. We want them to find out what the plan is that God has above everything else, whether they do good in algebra or not, whether they're great athletically or not. The goal is they have to find out God has a plan for their life, and we want them to fulfill that plan, and then they can die. Whether they take violin or guitar, whether they take soccer or football, doesn't matter. They have to find out God's plan for their life. So I have three points for you today. They all start with the letter C, and point number one for your notes is this. We have to have conviction of God's Word. The conviction, it all starts with the conviction that the Word of God is perfect, that that is the compass of my life, that that is where I get my morals from. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed from the mouth of God. It's profitable for instruction, conviction, correction, and for learning or being educated on how to live in conformity to God's will. Okay, so listen, watch up here. Um, There are two main types of morals in the world, okay? I can narrow it down to two. One is subjective morality, which means you do what you feel or what you think or what some person says is the right thing to do, or God morals, which is the Word of God. The only one that never, ever, ever, ever changes is the Word of God because it's perfect. It lasts from generation to generation. So if you or your child is being taught that they should live life based on what feels good, well, the problem with that worldview is what if somebody that lives next to them feels differently? What if they marry somebody that has the same view? Well, whatever feels good, I do. You know, in some cultures, it feels good to uh, bake your neighbors a pie. In some cultures, it feels good to eat your neighbors like a pie. You know, it depends on where you, so you can't go by what you think. And and you say, well, you know what, we're just going to do whatever the law says. Where's the problem with the law? It's always changing. 150 years ago, it was okay to have slaves. And and now, now of course, slavery is wrong because it's immoral because we know the Bible says so. So you can't go with the government. And if you are going to go with the government, are you going to go with the American government? Are you going to go with the Chinese government? Like, which one's right? You have to go with the Word of God. The question we have is this, how do I differentiate between good and evil? How do I define what is right and what is wrong? Because if we teach our kids, well, you do what I say as your parent, well, the problem with that is they're going to turn out like me. I want them to turn out better than me. So in our household, our morals have to come from somewhere. They come from the Word of God. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Um, If they don't, it's always going to be changing. Now, is God morally, stay with me, is he morally for or against adultery? Okay, not everybody answered, so I don't know if what we need to do here. I don't know what's going on in your life, so let's try another one. Is God morally, is he for or against stealing? Okay, is God for or against lying? Okay, why is God against these things? When we read something in the Bible that he's against, why is he trying to keep us from having fun? Is he trying to keep us from enjoying our life? Is he trying to keep us from feeling good? No, the reason God is against those things is because God is for people. He's against things that he knows hurt people. Is God for or against train wrecks? No, that's not in the Bible. I've never seen anything about a train wreck in the Bible. Is God for or against nuclear bombs being exploded? Okay, why? Because train wrecks hurt people. Is God for or against idols in our life? He's against it. Why? Because he knows ultimately it will hurt people. Okay? Psalms 18.30 says the word of God is perfect. 
So if there's anything in your life that thinks, you know what, I know the Bible says this, but I feel like this way is better, what you're doing is you're saying what the Bible's not from God. Because, see, God is perfect. And so if the words out of his mouth, by the definition of perfection, what he says has to be perfect. So if you think that you can go around saying, you know, I, you know, I believe in a lot of the Bible. In fact, this page right here is great, but this page here, psh, don't like it. Now, this one I agree with here, but this one doesn't make me feel good, so I don't want to do that. Psh. No, no, no. Then now, you've, now you are God in your life. Now you're determining your morals. You're determining what's right or wrong, and you're not going to fulfill the plan he has for you. You're going to fulfill the plan you have for you. Are you with me? So um, a few weeks ago, my wife and I were at a, a place here at Market Common. It was a very small little um, storefront type place, and there was about 10 people in the room. And I only go because she wanted me to go, and, you know, I do that because I love her. Okay. And so um, I, I go with her places. And so she's talking to some lady here, and I'm, talk, and I'm just sitting by myself. And I don't, when I, when I don't want to talk to people, I tell them that I'm a pastor. They stop talking immediately to me, and we're done, you know. And so if I, I'm, I'm honest with you. And so if I, if I ever feel like I want to witness to somebody or whatever, then I tell them when they say, what do you do? I say, oh, I own a nightclub. They'll tell me everything about their life, you know. And then I'll say, well, my nightclub meets on Sunday mornings at 9, 20, and 11 a.m. over there at Market Common. We have great music. You can dance to it. Oh, man, it's so good. You should come out. Anyway, so um, I didn't want to talk to anybody. And so the guy next to me said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And I thought to make it really hard, I'm actually the pastor of the church right here down the street here, you know. I thought that would shut him up, but he just started talking. And so I thought, okay, you want to talk? We'll talk. So we talked back and forth, you know. And uh, there was another guy that was with him talking to somebody else. And in the middle of the conversation, all of a sudden the guy says to me, he says, um, how do you feel about homosexuals? And uh, when, I, when it comes time to witness, you always start with grace and then you end with truth. That's what Jesus always did. Always grace, grace. I love you. I don't condemn you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. But this is sin, so don't do it anymore. You see, grace and then truth. And so I answered his question honestly. He said, how do you feel? I said, man, how do I feel? I said, I love homosexuals. I love them. I said, I love heterosexuals. I love black, white, red, yellow people. I love everybody. And we just kept talking more. About five to seven minutes later, then he said this. Well, now, is your church inclusive? I said, oh, man. I said, we are the most inclusive in the world. In fact, the Bible says in John 3, 16, that for God so loved the whole world. Look at this grace. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son. That's grace. Now watch truth. That whosoever wants to believe can believe. I said, man, anybody that wants to believe in the word of God, come to my church. I said, unless, they, you know, unless they're causing strife, because the Bible says if there's strife, you kick them out. I said, but if they're willing to sit and listen, I said, I want everybody. He said, so me and my husband can come to your church. Yes, yes, come to my church. I would love to. I'll reserve a seat for you. I said, yes, please, I'll take you out to lunch afterwards. Please just come to my church, come to my church. We talked a little bit more. Finally, towards the end, he asked the question of all questions, and he said this, what do you believe about homosexuality? I said, well, first of all, it doesn't matter what I believe. I said, I'm just a man. I said, I don't preach John Paul. I said, I preach what the Bible says. And to answer your question, you know, the Bible says that God hates divorce, but he loves divorced people. I said, a lot of things I preach about sin, I said, God hates the sin in my life, but he loves me so much. I said, homosexuality, it's a sin. But God loves sinners so much that he gave his only begotten son that anybody who wants to believe can believe. 
We shook hands. We had a great conversation. He left. I don't know if he's ever going to come to church or not, but I know I made a friend. Here's the point. If you think you can judge the Bible, you've become God. You don't judge the Bible. The Bible judges you. We're not here to say that this page is right and this page is wrong. We're here to say, what does it say is right and wrong in my life? That's what the Bible's for. It's not for me to say, well, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with that. No, it's for God to say, I don't agree with you. And I agree with this, but I don't like this. I love you, but I don't like this thing that you're doing. See, a lot of churches, they get away from even using the word sin anymore. Listen, there's sin. When we fall, we repent, and we get restored. There's sin. When we fall, we repent, and we get restored, right? It's not just, oh, I made a mistake. No, I committed a sin. I'm sorry, God, I need your help, and I need someone to help bring restoration into my life. The further we draw the line away from the Bible, the less we reflect Christ and the more we reflect the world. If there's no standards, there's no place to grow. If your family does not have biblical standards, y'all are going to stay the same the rest of your life. The purpose of the Bible is for us to keep growing. That's why churches should have standards of who's the leaders and who sings, who leads worship and standards for who's speaking into our children's life and standards in your home and standards in your marriage. And yes, we all fall, but according to the Bible, we can be, we can be forgiven, we step back up, but the stand, that gives us room to grow. You know, I love world history. I love world history. And if you study the world history, you know Rome was the greatest empire to ever exist, the most powerful empire that ever existed on planet Earth. Greatest, okay? If you really study the details of world history, no empire has ever risen greater than Rome. They were the only empire that literally controlled the whole world. Imagine, and, and USA is already a great nation. Imagine if America um, started defeating countries and just took over. Took over Canada, got rid of the geese, took over Mexico, took rid of, you know, got rid of South America. And we just started taking over everywhere, right? And then all of a sudden, now, if we're American, man, we feel good about ourselves, right? Because we own the world. And then imagine being president of America that owns and rules the whole world. And in Rome's case, it was called Caesar. Now, Caesar is not a name. Caesar's a title, like king or president, okay? So the greatest empire in the entire world, Rome, run by the most powerful man in the whole world, Caesar, if they were that powerful and they overtook every single nation and country, then why are they not in control today? Who defeated them, right? Now, if you study world history, you'll find they were not defeated by military might. Now, eventually they were, but that's not what destroyed them. Because think about it. They're so powerful, they control it all. So how are they ever going to be defeated? How are they ever going to get How is it ever going to go back to normal? Well, here's how. They actually became so morally corrupt that they decayed from the inside out. Twelve out of 14 Caesars were homosexual, and they taught that it's okay for children to be that way. And once you start drawing the line away from the Word of God, if the Word of God is our answer to prosperity and success, the more we draw the line away from it, the more obviously we're going to get away from prosperity and success. So once you say, well, you know what, even the Bible says this is wrong, but I think it's right, it's so easy to do it with the next page. And it's even easier to do it with the next page and on and on until you're so far away from the Bible, nothing in your life looks like Jesus. You just look like everybody else in the world. Do y'all wish Melissa were up here preaching? Because you act like you do for a minute, okay? <laughs> y'all better smile at me. When I get passionate about things, I start to stop smiling and I, and I raise my voice. Okay, point number two is this. You need the character of God's heart. So understand for our kids, for any of us, it starts with the Word of God. 
But the Word of God doesn't change you. Let me say, let me say, let me phrase that. Knowing what God says is right and what God says is wrong doesn't change you. Doesn't change you. Let me prove it to you. Hebrews eight ten. It says in the original in the original law. He says in the old law. I wrote my law on tablets of stone, but in this new covenant, I write it on their hearts. And then the most beautiful phrase in the whole Bible. I think it's about sixty four times in the Bible. It says this. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here's why. It's a relationship. Now. Not knowing what is right and wrong doesn't change anybody. None of you have the testimony of, you know, after John Paul preached that it was wrong to lie, from that day forward, I stopped lying. Now that I, I thought it was okay until he said it, once he said it, now I stopped lying. That is none of your testimonies. Not a single one of you changed because you discovered something's right and something's wrong. None of it. You can think you did. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Nobody. In fact, if, if someone steals, right, they're always stealing, here's how we should help them. We should just read what the Bible says, thou shalt not steal. Now they'll never steal again after they learn that. That's not changed any of you. If, if, if knowing what God says to do and not do change, change you, then all of you would be perfect if you've been here for about a year because we preach a lot of stuff here, right? That doesn't change you. It's the relationship with the author that changes you. If we could change Apart from Jesus and just having the Bible, he wouldn't have need to come to earth. Because, because we already had the Old Testament, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Well, now I'm going to be good and not do anything wrong anymore. The reason he came was to change us. It's, some of y'all are looking at me like I'm crazy. One of us is crazy, me or you, I don't know, it's probably me. Um, so you, knowing right and wrong, it's the relationship. God, listen, you can't change yourself. You can't, some of you try to change your spouse. It's so funny. You can't even change you. How many of you have a mental list, don't raise your hand, how many of you have a mental list of all the things you want your spouse to change in, right? And all, I just saw like four people look at the person next to them. Don't ever do that. Now I'm scared to look in your direction. Okay, you have a list of what you want your spouse to change. You can't even change you. This is why every person we love, we should always push them to spend time with Jesus. He's the one that changes you. Um, the Bible can tell you what to do, but only a relationship with the author of it can empower you to do it. That's the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to live a righteous life. Listen, for um, 4,000 years they tried to live a righteous life. And you know the whole purpose of the Old Testament commandment, one of the purposes was for them to fail over and over and over again. When are you going to recognize you can't get to God on your own? After 4,000 years, finally he says, okay, I'm going to send Jesus because that's the only way, the only truth, and the only life that you'll ever get to heaven through a relationship with him. Okay, so let me prove it to you, okay? In Luke, uh, uh, Zacchaeus, he was the wee little man. A wee little man was he, and he climbed up in a... Some of y'all went to Sunday school when you were little. Very, very good. I'm proud of you. So um, it says in Luke 19.3 that he couldn't see Jesus because of the crowd. He was really short, so he climbed up a sycamore tree. The climbing of the tree represents us trying to get to God in our own strength. See, Zacchaeus already knew right from wrong, but that didn't change him. He knew it was wrong to lie on your taxes and cheat people and steal money. That didn't change him. None of that changed him. So he climbs up a tree because he's trying to get Jesus, and that won't change you, but it does show a level of humility. It does show God that you're, you have brokenness on the inside, and it does show God, God, I'm willing to do anything. I just I have this addiction. I, I'm willing to do anything. God, I made this mistake. I'll do anything. Just, just I'll do anything, and it shows that brokenness, and Jesus says, you know what? You can't do anything apart from me, but when I come into your life, things are going to change. 
And so in verse 6, it says, Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus and said, I must spend time with you today. Zacchaeus hurried and came down, welcomed Jesus with joy. This is so funny. In the middle of the story, you know, sometimes I think, sometimes I have this huge imagination. You can't even imagine. But um, I, sometimes I see people in heaven, like some of the guys in the Bible, and I see them kind of writing some of our life story, you know. And um, I think it's so funny. If they're writing about me in heaven, this is probably the sentence they put right in the middle of the story. It's just so funny. It's like Zacchaeus, Jesus, Zacchaeus, Jesus. Now Zacchaeus was a man devoted to sin and preeminently a sinner. It's like I hear, like I hear James Earl Jones's voice as a narrator come on in the middle of the story, you know, say something like that. So he spent time with Zacchaeus. Here's the very next scripture, verse 8. Zacchaeus told the Lord, I'm going to give everything I have to the poor. The people that I've cheated, I'm going to give them back four times as much. And Jesus said, today, you and your whole family are going to be saved. What saved Zacchaeus? Was it knowing right from wrong or was it spending time with Jesus? See, this is why we encourage people to come to church, worship, serve, behind the scenes, give, spend time with God because that's the only way you'll change. I feel so sorry for the yo-yos that call me during the week and want help and they don't show up for church and they don't show up to serve and they don't show up for Bible study. What do you think? I can't change me and you want me to change you? I got problems myself, and you want me to fix all your problems? You need Jesus. You'll never know the heart of God without spending time with God. Conviction of the word, the character of God's heart. Point number three is this, the call of God's purpose. Proverbs 16, 4, everything the Lord made, every child in this building, every teenager who's gone through rough things in life, every divorced person, Every person with addiction in this room, every person who had a parent that never said, I love you and I'm proud of you, every single thing the Lord made has a destiny and has a purpose. Everything, everything, everything. I was reading many years ago about bumblebees. And um, do you know that, that, that according to the laws of aerodynamics, and all scientists in the whole world, it is impossible for a bumblebee to fly. Its body is too big and its wingspan is too small. It would be equivalent to putting 10-foot wings on a 747 and expecting it to fly. It's impossible. But the purpose, the plan that God has for the bumblebee's life is to fly from one plant to another to pollinate so that they can produce. That's the purpose. In other words, it has to fly to fulfill its purpose. Now, evidently, nobody has ever told the bumblebee that it's not supposed to fly. I'm sure that if it Googled itself and said, what do all the intelligent people of the world say about me? They'd say, well, you know what? You're not supposed to fly. You're, you know, your body's too big. Your wings are too small. I'm sure if you put that bumblebee in a room with cockroaches and ants and grasshoppers, they said, what are you doing up there? You're not supposed to fly. Look at us. We don't fly, and we're doing okay. At some point, that bumblebee would stop flying. So why does the bumblebee fly? Here's why. Because God said it's supposed to fly. Now, it is embedded into the world system, public school, social media, news, and all that. It is embedded to give every one of us an excuse for why we don't fly when Jesus tells us to fly. Well, I don't feel like, my, my emotions just tell me that I just shouldn't be flying. Well, just do whatever you feel. Well, you know, the color of my skin, you know, none of us fly growing up, so I don't think I'm going to be able to fly. That's fine with you. I don't have enough money in the bank to fly. Oh, you got to be rich to be able to fly. Okay, you don't have to fly. 
My parents didn't love me like their parents, so that's why I can't fly. Or I'm not as smart as this one, and that's why I can't fly. Or excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. And you know what? The goal for parenting is for our children to have enough faith that when Jesus says fly, they respond, how high? Because God's plan for your life is more powerful than the laws of nature. If the bumblebee can fly when it's impossible to fly, then when Jesus tells you to step out of the boat and walk on water, you'll step out of the boat and walk on water if that is the purpose and the plan that God has for you. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says the call of God is irrevocable. That means no matter what you've done or where you're at or what you've been through, the call of God is still there. You can be on drugs today and the call of God is still there. You can be in prison today and the call of God is still there. You can have done horrible things, the call of God is still there. You can be alone and the call of God is still there. You can have a big family and the call of God is still there. You can have a million dollars in the bank or no dollars in the bank and the call of God is irrevocable. Why would he give you a call that's irrevocable if he wanted you to stop using it when you went through something bad? in life listen and you know in the first service I felt such resistance with this point from people that have had horrible pasts horrible past listen to me I had my first child at 16 I was a felon at 17 I've been through a divorce I have all kind of problems I make mistakes and y'all are sitting here listening to me preach to y'all y'all got problems listen but the good news is there's a call of God on your life okay if I can do this just imagine what you can do There's a call of God on every single child's life. And even when I say those words, I feel this resistance in the room like, but if you only knew what I've done, if you only knew what I've been through, if you only knew how old I am, I just don't have it in me anymore. Excuse, excuse, excuse. If the bumblebee can fly, then you can do what God's calling you to do today. Okay? No excuse. I want to close with one of my top three favorite stories in the whole Bible. Okay? It's about a guy named Cyrus. Now, his actual name is Cyrus II, okay? And uh, Cyrus II, also known as, um, in world history, but also known in the Amplified Bible, is Cyrus the Great. Cyrus II, Cyrus the Great, um, he was a Persian king. Evil, evil man. If you want to liken him to somebody... You could kind of liken him to Hitler, but maybe, you know, a little bit less. He enslaved all of God's people. He wanted to rule the world. He loved money. He had no morals. He did whatever he wanted to do. And, um, and, and it's so funny because one day, <laughs> one day Cyrus reads, um, it says in 2 Chronicles 36, 22, in the first year of his reign, it says in order to, this is so funny, to fulfill the word of the Lord. Now, just remember Hitler, okay? To fulfill the word of the Lord. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that Cyrus, and let me modernize it, so that he gets on social media, Twitter, um, the news. He said, I got an announcement, everybody. I want the whole world to know this. Um, God's got a call on my life. Yep, that's right. I know I'm evil. I know I've done horrible things. I've enslaved all of his people. Uh, but God actually chose me. He chose me to do something great. Yep, he chose me to build him a church so that he can come and dwell among his people and we can worship him right there in the city of Jerusalem. How in the world could something like that happen to somebody? Somebody that's just, 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 just that's so evil, um, it's so um, just wanting to control, loves money, hates God, hates the things of God, and he stands up in front of the whole world and says, God chose me. 
God's got a plan for my life. I'm going to build a church for him. What caused that? Well, here's what caused it. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? One day Daniel goes to Cyrus, the second Cyrus the Great, and he says, can I read you something that was written um, in the book of Isaiah in a scroll 150 years ago? He says, sure, read it to me. In Isaiah 44, verse 28, and Isaiah 45, verse 4, it says this. It says, I say of Cyrus, now this is God speaking 150 years before this story that I'm telling you, 150 years before. He says, I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Now, that's so funny because he's a king. A king would not be a shepherd. That, that's very unusual there. He says, and he shall do what I tell him to do. Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the temple will be restored. For I spoke it. And then he goes on to say this. The Lord said to his anointed? Wait, anointed? Wait, wait, wait. Only Christians are anointed. I don't understand this. Only Christians have the empowerment to prosper through Jesus. How can he have this? He's anointed Cyrus. I have a call on your life. I called you Cyrus the Great. In fact, I named you before you even knew who I was. And Cyrus read that, and all of a sudden, everything in his whole life changed. He said, you know what? God's got a plan for me. I'm gonna... How, why would that scripture, why would that in the scroll of Isaiah, why would he see that, and why would it mean so much to him? Well, here's why. It starts with his grandfather, Astyages. Now, grandfather was king, incredibly evil, just as evil as Cyrus II was. And, and the day that Cyrus was being born... The night before, the grandfather who's on the throne has a dream that his grandson is going to grow up and remove him from the throne and take over the world. So Astyages tells his servants, hey, as soon as my grandson is born, I want you to rip him from the arms of his mother and father, and I want you to take him out to the woods and kill him, just like Satan wants to do with all the babies now. And so the servants obedient. He takes the little baby, who they have not even named yet. And you notice on here, the campuses, the first... Where, where's Cyrus the first at? We see he's, he's Cyrus the second, but where we see Astyages, we see Cambyses, and then we see this, this great-grandson of Astyages, Cambyses the second. So where, I don't, it, it, it like skips a generation, and then where's Cyrus the same? And so the servant takes the baby out to the woods, and he just can't do it. He sees this healthy newborn baby crying his eyes out. He thinks, God, what, I can't, I'm going to get in trouble if I don't kill him. What do I do? And he hears some rustling over in the brush, and he looks over, and there's a young couple, very young couple, and they're crying uncontrollably. He says, what's wrong? They said, we just gave birth to our stillborn son, and they're burying their baby. He looks at the healthy baby. He sees the, he says, uh, do, do you want to raise this baby? They said, well, yeah, of course we do. What's the catch? He says, no catch. Just take the baby. Go back to your village. Never mention this day ever happened. And happily, they take the little baby, and they go back to their village, and they raise it. And so the servant, he gets the dead baby, the stillborn baby, and he takes it back to Astyages. And he says to him, I did what you said, king. I killed your grandson. Here's proof. The grandfather says, okay, now you can go bury him. And he goes and buries him. The couple that took the little baby... The father is a shepherd, and his name is Cyrus, and he names his son Cyrus II, and he raises him to be a shepherd like himself. Every year for 10 years on the baby's birthday, Astyages starts going into this horrible depression for what he did to his grandson, so bad that he takes weeks off of the throne and just cries and is so upset. So finally, after 10 years, the servant that took the baby to go kill the baby goes to the king and says, King, I got some news for you. I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's bad. Don't be upset with me. But I didn't kill your grandson like you told me to. The king says, That's good news. Where is he? He said, I gave him to a shepherd to be raised. 
He says, bring him to the palace. So they bring Cyrus II to live in the palace, to become heir of the throne. And just like the grandfather's dream happened, Cyrus overthrows him. Says, get out of here. I'm taking over the world. I'm going to run the world. I'm going to be in charge of everything. And then one day, the first year of his reign, Cyrus reads in the Bible written 150 years before that God said, I named you Cyrus, and you're my shepherd, and you're going to build me a church. And that is why with such incredible conviction, this evil man realized God knew me before I was born, had a plan for my life, had a detailed thing. God knew that this man was going to raise me. God knew this man was going to try to kill me. God knew all of this was going to happen, and I belong to him, and I'm going to build him a church. Isn't that amazing? Listen, the Bible, if you would just open up your Bible, is so much better than a Steven Spielberg movie. It's better than a Stephen King book. It is good stuff, man. I can't make this stuff up. It's good. If you want to know your purpose, you got to get to know the one who created your purpose. 150 years ago. Do you know that God knew this 150 million years ago? <laughs> Imagine. God had it all planned out. And he's done the same thing with your life. <laughs> All you got to do is spend time with the one. So let me show you the closing, the greatest scripture in the Bible on this point, okay? It starts with grace. It ends with truth. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. Wouldn't you love for all things to work together in your life for good? I mean everything that's happened. People that tried to kill you, people that pulled you off track, the addictions. Wouldn't you, don't you want it all to work out for good? That's the grace. Here's the truth part. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I want to kind of leave you with this analogy. If you feel like you're off track today, just go back to loving him. <laughs> right? Just go back to worship, serve, give. And it's like he takes you and picks you up with his big old mighty hands that hold the world. And he places you right back on the road you're supposed to be on. And if you veer off track tomorrow, then you just go back to loving him. And he picks you right back up and puts you right back on there. And he'll do it a million times over again until you reach the plan that he has for your life. And you die having fulfilled that plan. Amen? That's all I got for you today. That's it.